again, if I go back to where I feel like I learned the most, maybe struggled the most, matured the most, increased my level of self-awareness as, as a leader, it was always in those moments, you know, early days of Akamai, dot-com boom, dot-com crash, all of the tough times there, the layoffs, Danny passing, all of these things, or the early days of, of Facebook when, you know, you looked at most things and you're like, I don't know how this worked today. And just this sheer force of will of wanting to keep going. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I got to talk to a bunch of people you're one of the more like interesting folks that I've had the opportunity to study. And part of the reason for that is because you come from a very non-traditional CEO background. There is a lot of CEOs that actually do remind me of you that are founders who come from a very deep technical grounding. But those that are the, in air quotes, adopted, and I mean that in a nice way, CEOs, usually tend to be the business CEOs. And so I had a lot of fun kind of studying your come up through Facebook, your come up through kind of the whole career path that you've done, and then seeing you plop into the role that you're in now, just very different. Have people cast typed you as a certain thing throughout your life? Meaning when you were at Facebook or when you were leading engineering teams before that, you know, when you were in your first role at Facebook, which was... I think, to lead infrastructure. And then by the time you left, you were leading all of engineering. There was an article I read somewhere that said, the man who keeps Facebook humming. It was about you. Very flattering. But nonetheless, when you were the infrastructure manager, did people say, oh, Jay was a great infrastructure manager. And when you were maybe at Akamai or wherever you were, oh, Jay's a great engineer. Has there been this box that people try and put you in? I think that's, possible. And I think there are people who, when you're talking about experiences or talking about roles you can play in a company, maybe advising companies, you would get called for, hey, I need somebody to talk to my CTO about this thing. I need somebody to talk to this engineer about this piece of technology. And those are all fun, right? Because if I can share experiences, share mistakes, war stories with people and have people get through these things faster, better, cheaper than I did, then it is a great feeling to be able to help the community. I just never really spent much time if fixating on that or trying to overcorrect it or listen to it. For me, it was all about how do I get and keep that S-curve of learning in terms of experience and knowledge and just the people that I would work with, how do I keep that, stay on that S-curve, the steep part of that S-curve as long as possible? And I think life is, I think careers are these series of S-curves and you want to minimize the flat spots. If you need a break, you take that maybe plateau feeling for a little bit, but you want to jump back on that steep rate of learning and adventure. And so 
I think the other thing too is I've been fortunate where when I was at roles early on, say at Akamai or even at Facebook throughout my career at Facebook, I just stumbled into a lot of other things, Jubin. When I joined Akamai, I was actually in go-to-market for the first year or so. And then George and the founders were like, hey, we have this other problem over here. Can you do corp dev? And I was like, I don't even know how to spell corp dev. Mm -hmm. And just jumped in, learned, absorbed, did the best that I could, was fortunate that I got to work with incredible people. And being able to kind of just jump into these experiences, even though they were outside of the engineer box, I think just really helped me develop that appreciation for teams, leadership, people, dealing with challenging situations, understanding more and more about the business, customers, partnerships, the financials, et cetera. So I've just been always very curious about as much of the 360 view of a business, even though I might be typecast as, in air quotes, engineer. Yeah. The thing about the S-curve, though, for you is your slope of learning happened in primarily the same sets of places, meaning you did eight years at Akamai and how long? 11. 11 at Facebook. That's basically your career. A lot of folks think that once you're three years in at Akamai and your slope starts to decrease, well, then you got to go get a new job. That wasn't the case for you. That was not the case because I can describe, say, at Akamai or at Facebook, you know, three, maybe four distinct chapters where my role in the phase of company had felt very different to me. And I was, again, very fortunate with the founders of Akamai, Tom, George, Danny, who's passed, and also Mark and other leaders at Facebook to always find kind of that next thing that was a head scratcher, that was hard, that was difficult. Because again, say at Facebook coming in, we didn't really have this notion of infrastructure early on. And then transforming that engineering culture and transforming kind of the technology base to really be vertically integrated. We can talk about that later. But to really build that team, build that technology to find a way to be at or ahead of that steep growth that Facebook had in those first, call it five, six years that I was there were, you know, behind the scenes, it was crazy, right? You just often days, we would wake up in the morning, we would all get together, we'd be just firefighting basically all through noon. We would do the daily push, our new release would go out every day around one or two o'clock Pacific time. Depending on how good or bad the release was, we would be firefighting for maybe a couple hours later, or it could be through one o'clock, 2 a.m. in the morning, right? Then we'd go to bed and we'd do it all over again. And I joke, but I don't joke, long-term planning for us was, how are we going to survive the three-day weekend? (laughs) Because things were just so crazy in terms of the user growth and the activity, the engagement on the platform, the rate of feature development. And you just looked behind the scenes and you're like, wow, how does this stuff even work? It just defies the laws of physics sometimes. By the time you left Facebook, your team, which was running all of infrastructure and engineering, right? There was 3.4 billion people on the platform. Right. There's like 7 billion people in the world. Right. A bunch of those 7 billion are under like 18 years old. You know? Correct. And so you're supporting most of the world's online 
use in this platform. Did that moment ever come on you where it was like, is this too big of a job? Do I want this job? And by the way, I imagine at that point, when you have that level of responsibility, you're flying pretty close to the Zuck sun. You're there. That sun burns bright. I just wonder, like living in that land of responsibility that I think most dream of, you probably couldn't even dream of this. Is it what you thought it would be? I would say when I first got to Facebook, remember when I got there in 2009, it was pre-mobile. This was Facebook.com on a website, right? People were primarily using it on a desktop, on a laptop, using it in a web browser in the morning, maybe at lunch in the evening on the weekends. I think we might have had an iOS application, but I don't think anybody really used it. There was a team, I think, of a few people who were building this thing, and and it was an incredible app, but it was all pre-mobile. And all of the traffic, all of the users, all the feature development was all on desktop browser, right? And that was 300 million people using Facebook.com monthly. And when I left, like you said, the family of apps, including Instagram, WhatsApp, yep. et cetera, was three and a half billion, 3.4 billion, something like that. I never had a moment where I thought this was too scary. Yeah. I think I tend to embrace those moments, those challenges where there is the adrenaline rush yeah. for me. And I think I'm very, very allergic to the status quo. And so having some in the right amount of chaos in building and scaling teams, technology, products, businesses at just a unprecedented rate, always are things where I find maximal learning and you thrive in these moments. And Listen, not everything went perfectly well. We didn't have all the answers. And and then in some ways that was the comforting part of it, Jubin, right? Which is, hey, well, actually, nobody's done this before. I can't order a book and just read on how this was done before. Or I can't just go and take this class or read this blog post for how this is done because nobody's done this. Yeah. And I think it just shows the strength of one. We just built this incredibly talented, diverse team. Yeah. And it's not just a group of talented individuals because your job as a leader is go find the best and the brightest, right? But then unlocking that potential and actually getting them to complement each other, work with each other, grow and learn from each other, yeah. and really stare at these challenges and the problems. We had the luxury of being able to take unconventional approaches on these things, sure. right? We could invest the capital to go build our own compute, our own AI systems, our own custom network, our own... Your own plane that's flying around, like, trying to beam Wi-Fi. Yeah, that too. Yeah, like everything. Growth is a privilege in that sense. Absolutely. The thing that I've been balancing in my head is that, on the one hand, you have the intensity that I look for in greatness, that comes with great leaders. However, on the other hand, you have this Zen master-like demeanor to you, but I know that there is the dog inside of you that wants greatness, but it projects outwards in a very calm demeanor. Have you always been that way? Always. Always. No matter what. And were you raised that way? I think so. We had a very, both my parents, very intense, very focused I do think that we have our moments where people have different ranges of emotions in terms of frustration or anger. We're all human. But I've always had this and people describe me and maybe this is what I've kind of reflected on in terms of how I've evolved as a leader is this quiet intensity. 
And I think that that just works for me. It's something where I feel and I'm very curious and observant and I want to hear and learn and listen to lots of opinions, lots of facts, etc. But I really excel and I want excellence out of everything I do and for the teams that I support. Yeah. And to me, that's just more fun to actually always be focused on what it takes to win. Yeah. And it's a team effort. It's not a hero complex or anything like that. This is just, I think great people want to do great things and they want to grow the, and they're not going to grow by doing the same things over and over again. Yeah. And so if something's pretty good, people who I work with will say it's just always moving the goalpost further away and saying, well, okay, that's pretty good, but how is that going to be X better? Right. Yeah. And, and optimizing things is important in lots of aspects of business, but you should always be thinking about, and I always think about, how do you disrupt yourself? How do you th disrupt the way you think, the way you plan, the way you execute, the way you think about delivering great products to customers or clients out there? I just think the world moves super fast, and most humans don't comprehend how fast the world moves these days. Mm. And so if you're not disrupting yourself and you're not thinking about that 2 or 4 or 10x delta or disruption factor, then I think you just get left behind. I completely agree with you. It's almost like, and tell me if you disagree with this, that you find this like spirituality in business. I can't really explain it, but it's almost like this. Um, I was with Robert Chatwani, who's the president of DocuSign earlier this week. I know Robert. You know Robert. He has this almost Southeast Asian spirituality. You know, it's almost like a Zen Buddhism. And I feel like you live somewhere in that world that has a incredible amount of overlap with work. Like it almost feels like work is some center of spirituality for you in the way that you talk about it and that others talk about you working. Do you think that's fair? I think that's fair. I'm always thinking, I'm always processing. A lot of it is in these roles about work and about the people and about what we're trying to accomplish, what needs to be tweaked or improved from a short-term perspective, but also thinking about where we're trying to achieve or what we're trying to achieve long-term as mm. well. And I think that there's a lot of, in some ways, thinking through all of the ways that something can maybe not go quite right and maybe taking a bit of a paranoid or pessimistic view short-term mm -hmm. in teams and hiring and execution and delivering products and closing a deal, et cetera, but staying and remaining super optimistic about where all this leads up to and how this building that you're doing, this creation that you're doing ends up having a major impact in the world. What was the first job you ever had where someone paid you a paycheck? I think it was a dishwasher. Where? At a restaurant in the town I grew up in. Which is where? I think I lasted three days, Jube. <laughs> <laughs> and this is in Eastern Pennsylvania yeah. where I grew up. And then I ended up finding a job sorting photos that you would go to like a Walgreens mm -hmm. and you would <laughs> hand in your roll of yeah. film. Yeah. So I had this great job actually. It was Monday through Friday versus my Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights. And I used to wake up at like 4.30 in the morning. I would go to work from like 5.30 to 3 and I'd be done. And then I have the afternoon, the evenings free. And those were probably the 
first two jobs I had. Then I ended up doing plant maintenance at my dad's company. That was hard. It was a summer job and it was landscaping. It was a bunch of plant maintenance stuff. So it was like hard labor for a long summer. Yeah. My parents came here from India and they had nothing, right? They were in debt when they came to this country and they had to build a life here and Mm. raise two kids. And so, you know, we learned early what it takes to earn a dollar here. You graduated Virginia Tech in 94. You spent probably five years of your career figuring out the world, basically, like what the working world actually looks like. And you ended up at Akamai, like you mentioned, in 99. And the company went public, what, six months after you were there? Seven, I think, yes. Seven months. And by the way, there's a lot of resonance between then and now in some weird way, isn't there? 100%. Fourth biggest IPO at that time ever. The stock opened at 26 bucks a share. That afternoon, it closed at $124 a share. It shot up to $353 a share. Market cap was 40, 50 billion. I think it was 34, 35 billion. Do you remember how much revenue the company was doing? Yeah, I do. Like $9 million. $9 million of ARR. And you thought our multiples were high (laughs) a year ago. Right. And and people say it's never going to come back. Well, maybe it will. Uh, And then within a couple of months, maybe a year, not even, six months, the stock price was less than a dollar. 56 cents. 56 cents. You did eight years there. That was your first year. When you look back on that, I'm not even sure what question I have. Like, how insane was that? It's still hard 20-some years later to put words to it, Jubin. And there was a lot of things that a big part of what you left out in that story is, you know, Danny Lewin was one of the founders along with Tom and Jonathan. And Danny was just this sheer force of nature and just an incredible, incredible technologist, human being, business person. Those of us that were close and there's folks out there that are much closer to Danny than I was, but I remember fondly being in his office because I moved from the Bay Area to Boston to Cambridge for those first almost two years of Akamai. So from 99 through about 2000, mid 2001, I think it was. And I remember being up in Danny or Tom would call me and I'd run upstairs and they shared an office about this size. And I just remember getting yelled at twice a week by them. And it wasn't at me. It was about a bunch of other things that were not going well in the company. And just, Jay, we need you to go do this. I'm like, I don't know what that is. And then they do the download with me. And then I'd be like, okay, I'll go figure something out. And then I'd come back two days later. I'm like, still no idea what this is. And then eventually, eventually I learned by just getting thrown into the fire in these like incredibly hard problems that in some ways I think Danny and Tom were Maybe they had planned this, but it was an incredibly fast learning curve. I learned so much about different things there. The other thing that is really important in this story is, despite the stock price and whatnot, and remember the whole tech ecosystem shot up and had this crazy dot-com boom, and then it 
completely collapsed, right, within a very short period of time. Much worse than what's happening right now. Way worse, way worse, right? And there's two other things that I think are really instructive in this from a, and I'll come back to it from a leadership perspective, bitches. One is, you know, we lost Danny in this whole thing. Danny was in the second plane that crashed into the second tower. And I just remember I had just moved back out here for Akamai. So I had moved back from Cambridge out to the Bay Area. And I remember getting a call from my manager at the time and early in the morning, right? And it was just a normal morning. I don't even remember what day a week it was. And getting ready and I get the call and Marty was like, hey, we think Danny was on the plane. And I just speechless, right? And it was hard to complete the call and I get a call back. I don't remember how much longer, maybe 20 minutes, an hour later. No, we think he's okay. And remember, this is before mobile and all of that. So it was really hard to just, this whole thing happened in slow motion and you had the TV on and you saw all of these horrific scenes and all of the hardship and the death and the injuries and confusion around all of these different areas. And then you got the call or I got the call and it was confirmed that Danny was on the, on the second flight. And the thing that was just so wild, and again, I can't put words to it, and I don't think many of us still can. So you're processing losing this incredible leader, founder, human being in your company, but yet that day was probably the most important day for Akamai service in the world to that date, because everybody was bringing up their computers and checking out the internet and hammering all of these news websites. And they were all toppling over without Akamai. And so we were just helping all of these companies out there survive that day or two of information flow, confusion, updates, rescue efforts, everything, right? So you just found these moments throughout the day, two minutes here, five minutes here, 30 seconds here to just start trying to process the grief, but you didn't have time because we all had to come together. We all had to just instantly galvanize as a team to really not disappoint Danny's vision, his legacy. And you just wanted everything to work out. And it's hard to put words to it. I don't think many people go through these types of experiences in business. And I think you asked about, okay, that was in the first year or two, and then you still stayed another seven or so years. But again, it was that core team that just instantly melded or galvanized and forged together. And then there was this loyalty, like this unpenetrable loyalty of surviving, building this company. And the other thing to remember is after all that happened, it didn't get better. It got worse. Our customer base was primarily all the dot-coms. And guess what happened to those dot-coms? Yeah, belly up. They vanished, mm. right? And our entire customer base was just disappearing. It was like evaporating. And we didn't know enterprise sales. We didn't know solutions. We didn't know how to support customers, big customers. We didn't even have, I think, a set of products that really solved enough of the problems for these big enterprises. So it was a real 
focused effort to pivot the whole company, go to market. We are also burning a ton of money, right? So we had to go and do all of this engineering work to figure out how we were going to save money. And a lot of time spent just trying to scavenge every dollar we could in terms of our burn. And we did four or five rounds of layoffs. I don't remember. Took the company from probably 15, 1600 people down to 500 people over the course of a year or two. And that was emotionally tough as a leader for everybody, right? It was unfortunate. And then I think we came, I don't exactly remember the details. We probably came within two, maybe three months of missing payroll. And then to come back out of near ashes, 56 cent stock price, that low cash balance, cutting so many people, and then to pivot the company, build that company back up to when I left in 2007 or so to be approaching a billion in ARR. Yeah, it's like almost a 20 billion market cap company today. That ride is unbelievable. When you were at Facebook, the decree from Mark down on mobile came probably within a year. It was two, it's three, two to three years. In talking to folks that were there at that time, they would say, if you came up with a new product idea that was not mobile first, basically go back to your desk and come back to Mark when you had that, right? Does it feel to you a little bit like that's almost like what AI is today in the sense that if people are coming up to you with new product ideas, does it feel similar to you as what mobile did to Facebook at that time, now being at the helm of a thousand person company? And I wonder if you have any, if you can draw any comparisons there, or if you think it's completely different. I don't think it's exactly the same. I do think that it is something that it needs to be incorporated in all of our ideation and yeah. all of how we need to think. We talked a bit about just not being okay with the status quo. And we all know that there's going to be some significant disruption that happens because of this supply side technology of AI. I would say that maybe what's different in the mobile times at Facebook was we had hard data that the user base was shifting. And when you look at that, it was obvious that we had to start thinking about all of these experiences. You had to see mocks in mobile first, not desktop mocks. Yeah. And that's where we tried to really quickly change the behavior, change the orientation of the engineering and the product team, which is think about these experiences first in that form factor of a mobile phone, and then we'll carry it into the browser, but we had inertia. It was just people wanted to design things in the browser, but then we would try to port these things into mobile and it doesn't work. So that was the inversion, but we had the data, Jubin, that said there was no option. You had to make a hard, it was very binary at that point. What's even more fascinating to me is that the IPO happened around- It was about 11 years ago, in fact. Wow, it's crazy. That's crazy. And Facebook got beat up in the markets because of the mobile strategy. 
it was delayed. Like the data was already too obvious, you know? Yes, it was yes. um your confidence interval was like ninety-nine percent when you probably should have made the decision at like sixty-five percent, you know? Right. Um, right. and within six months, by the time the lockup was over, your stock price was cut in half. It was cut in half. <laughs> yes. It's like we're living in like you're doing parallel all- universes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> The other two IPOs I was in actually fared better than those two in the first few months. Today, so, good, yeah. good, good. As someone who's a senior leader in the team, how much time are you spending in those moments with the people? Just working on the morale and the culture. Because that's a very difficult thing to deal with. I think you're always dealing with that. And I think there are times where it is particularly tense or confusing. And by the way, I ask because a lot of leaders are dealing with that right now. Right now. So I think it's one of those things where if you're not oriented to always be thinking about that, even in good times and when things are, you're really successful and flying high, you still want to be cultivating that culture, that morale, and not letting the organization kind of soak in that success because that's just going to lead to complacency, which then is going to lead to mediocrity for me. In good times, I never think you're as good as you think you are. In bad times, you're never as bad as people think you are. And that is in those moments where I think Mark and Cheryl and Trep and myself and a bunch of other leaders, I think the long-term mission in our internal metrics of what was happening at Facebook spoke for themselves, right? So, yeah, it was unfortunate, and I think it definitely was a bit of cloud over the day, but we didn't fixate on this because when you look at the other metrics in terms of growth, in terms of engagement, we had to figure out how this shift in strategy was around monetization, but everything else, there was a lot of signs of strength in the business. And we just focused on those things that were going really well, keep them going really well. And then we'll figure out this shift thing as fast and as quick as possible. And this is where I think Mark is incredible on this because he has such a long-term view on things. Yep. And that's where I think you could really anchor because of Mark's disposition or his orientation in the world. When you were leaving, Zuck posted on Facebook, a lot of what we achieved over the past 11 years just wouldn't have been possible without you, you being Jay. I don't think we even had a data center when he joined, and now we share our design so the rest of the world can catch up. Super cool. Now that you're the CEO, I'm curious, are there any characteristics from Mark that you try and emulate? Things that you learned from him of greatness that you kind of put in your back pocket and try and put on display as much as you can? Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of things that we're able to create or follow or support from Mark, but also as a leadership team, what we evolved into, because the company in 2009 was whatever, less than a thousand people. And when I left, it was 65,000 people, right? So even though the core values of the company were consistent throughout that time, the behaviors, the feeling of those core values, the way that they were practiced, the behaviors inside the teams, they all kind of evolved over time. And I would say maybe a few things that I've taken with me and I'll keep with me for the rest of my career. One 
thing that I really admire about Mark is just the openness that he had with everybody, with the employees. And Mark, I don't know what it is like today, but he would do this weekly Q&A on Friday afternoons where he would just answer any question from employees, right? And as the organization got bigger, there were different ways to do it. And Mark would be up there and the leadership team, myself and others would be there and employees could come and ask whatever questions they wanted, right? And we encouraged openness. We encouraged directness. We encouraged the hard questions. And we would do the best we could. Sometimes we didn't know the answer. We had to follow up with folks. But that transparency, I think, was really important for such a fast-moving business where we were figuring out so many different things and how the world was changing as well. I think that directness or that approachability was a key thing that I think is unique about or was unique about my experience at Facebook. And it wasn't just about Mark. It was about many leaders as well. I would also say that I think Facebook gets a bad rap around the move fast and break things because generally people think that that is like a reckless thing and it never was intended that way. It was always about what I would define and talk to our teams about is this learning loop. And as you get bigger, that loop gets longer and you traverse it slower. Just as you get bigger, more successful, human nature is to become more risk averse. There's just more coordination. There's more consensus building. More layers. More layers. More politics. And just people come trying to do different things and optimizing different things, right? With different contexts. And I always thought and appreciated and pushed for, and still to this day, that learning loop, no matter what size you are, you should always be striving to make it faster and faster and faster. And I don't care if you're a 10-person team, you're for 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, that should go as fast as you possibly can, and you're never going as fast as you want to go. And that is a large part culturally. You got to hire the right people. You have to find the right ways to work together. You have to be able to instrument and measure some of this as well. And then you have to constantly be trying to improve it. So that move fast was the core value. And I think that really just simplifies a lot of things. And it prevents people from complexifying solutions and process and organizational stuff. Because if you're just, okay, we have two days. What can we get done in two days to learn this next iteration? And I think that just really got us all focused much more quickly. I really like that. I think it's much more fun. Yeah. And I think great people, you want to work with great people and great people want to win and they want to do incredible stuff. And I think being able to move fast and be able to constantly measure the impact that you're having in these iterations course correct regularly is a key part of building a great organization and then a great company. During one of the craziest hyperscales ever, Knowing what you know now, let's say Lacework's going to go through this, okay? Fingers crossed. Is there a time management lesson that you would take? Meaning, is there a way, a bucket of time that you spent looking back that if you were to do it all over again, you would reallocate? I guess the way I work, it's hard because I don't remember how I spent my time in my schedule. But one of the things that I really got tuned in on about myself, and this is 
increasing my level of self-awareness and just effectiveness as a leader. As the organization got bigger, as I was responsible for more and more things from infrastructure to all of engineering to some product stuff to the connectivity stuff to privacy, you had to constantly be looking for how to reallocate your time. And I am somebody who is pretty fixated on looking at probably on a daily basis, if not maybe a couple of day basis, just looking at my schedule and subjectively coming up with a, how did I feel about the last two days, right? And looking through those meetings and being like, hey, did I allocate my time enough for what my role is? So as CEO of Lacework, I need to make sure I'm spending enough time thinking about longer term initiatives and products and strategies in the company. If I'm not allocating enough time, right? If all of my time is focused on this week or this quarter, then frankly, nobody else in the company is going to be spending the time. But if I allocate the time, then people get dragged into those conversations with me. And so I have to put that as a big rock in the jar first. And then there's reallocation of other things that happen. And so I am somebody who is just always iterating on how I allocate time and I never feel like it's optimal, right? And I'm a stickler for meeting starting on time, ending on time, and making sure that there's a flow throughout my day. And I have- Why? Why are you a stickler? I respect people's time. And so if someone shows up late to a meeting, how do you coach that? Well, we talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just an expectation that we- do our best to, I mean, stuff does happen, right? Sure. This is the real world and you do get hung up or whatever happens. But generally speaking, I think it's something where, I think it's just really important as a leader to set the standard for how everybody else sh should be respected. I think there is all too often in our industry where executives think that they can show up late, hold a meeting late and everybody will adjust. They do right? How many people are going to complain to me about showing up to a meeting 10 minutes late? They're not. They're going to be like, OJ, we understand you're busy. I'm like, no, I disrespected 10 minutes of your time. So I take that really seriously. Can you explain 30 seconds? What does Lacework do? Yeah, sure. As people are moving to the cloud, as people are building in the cloud, the entire model for how security and securing data your employees, your users, your applications, that entire model gets turned on its head. The approach that was done and built for decades on-prem, really none of it applies or works or can keep up with how security needs to be done in the cloud. Why do people move to the cloud? They're moving to the cloud because they want to innovate and move fast, and they don't want to be left behind. So that entire model of moving fast, but also making sure that security isn't something that's a gate and slowing you down has to be rethought from first principles. So what Lacework was founded on is, hey, there's this move to the cloud. There's this shift to the cloud. Things are chaotic in the cloud. Things are changing. Applications are getting launched. Data is being collected. Things are starting and stopping, moving around. And how do you make sure that you're taking care of and securing and can innovate with speed and safety. And so we take this data-driven approach. We collect all of this different telemetry. We use machine learning and AI to correlate these things. We 
help really prioritize what that risk is for a engineering team, an operations team, a security team is, so that they can focus on the risks that really matter and mitigating those risks. So we're very focused on how do we prevent bad things happening for these major enterprises out there. And we take a, I would say, a broader and expansive view in that we have to glue together both outcomes that help you prevent security problems from happening, incidents from happening, but we also have to provide visibility and triangulation and investigation for when something happens on the response or the react side of things. You didn't have enough after Facebook, like you very senior leader at Facebook during the heyday of the top five greatest companies we've ever seen. Clearly, when I talk about the dog in you, there is a dog in you that's almost masochistic to then go in 2021. So like we're already in the massacre of software SaaS businesses to then go take on your first CEO gig. You're married, right? Yes. You have a wife? She's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we could spend some time together. You know, like we have kids, you know, I, I don't know. I took, I think somewhere between four and six months yeah. to process the world, to get headspace back from the journey yeah. at Facebook. And I was exploring a bunch of different things. There was some ideas to start a company. There was advising a bunch of different companies that were in completely different spaces, right? One in health tech and there was other technologies that I was just really curious about. So I got introduced and I started advising and helping these companies. And that was great learning and just really tried to have a very wide aperture of that exploration that was happening. Now it was tough because it was still in COVID and you couldn't spend time face to face, which I think if I had to do it again, all over again, it would be probably more enjoyable, more fun to have done that. I think it was surprising to me, but it was unsurprising to most people who know me well that I wasn't done operating. I wasn't done building and creating. Did you and I don't, wanna be? Meaning, was it surprising to you because you're almost telling yourself, hang it up, chill? I tried to. Have some chill. Yeah, I tried to. Yeah. I think after a couple months, those who know me, I'm a very restless person. It's hard for me to sit still. Yeah. And I think that just kind of caught up again and it was like time to go again. But that's why I go back to this almost spiritual nature of business building for you because you could reapply your restless energy anywhere, but you seem to continue to be attracted to hard problems. Hard problems. Yes. That happen through business. Absolutely. As I was talking to lots of people, trying to just reacclimate. Because when you're in Facebook for 11 years, you're really deep down a rabbit hole. Now it is an amazing rabbit hole with amazing people with incredible impact. Being able to have created a technology and a medium that allows three and a half billion people in the world to communicate, to share in fun times and dire times as well is it's not just a once in a lifetime thing. I think it's a once in multiple lifetimes Agreed. experience, right? And so incredibly humbled and appreciative and grateful for that. But as I was thinking through what to do next, I kept coming back to if I'm going to go into enterprise, back in enterprise from my days before Facebook, mm -hmm. the hardest problem I see in enterprise is security. And I just kept coming back to this thing is chaotic. It's changing so fast, yet 
it is so impactful, so important for the world. And so that's what drew me to it. And I think the approach that Lacework has with this technology, having spent a lot of time building really sophisticated technology from day one, actually reminded me of how we built a lot of our security systems at mm -hmm. Facebook. Mm -hmm. So there was like, wait, this is how we did things at a very proprietary and at a massive scale for Facebook, but it's all locked up in Facebook or it's all locked up in Google or it's all locked up in what big company, whatever big company. But here we get to build something and help thousands, tens of thousands of companies out there that don't have access to the people, don't have access to this type of technology and this type of experience or expertise in, in a company. So it is the adrenaline rush and it is fun. It's hard. We're building an incredibly talented team that I learn from all day long. What I would think that we see at Kleiner Perkins quite frequently is you're solving very difficult technical challenges at Facebook. You could extrapolate that forward to say Facebook is at the bleeding edge of a lot of problems that probably people will have in five years from now. Maybe some of those are security problems. It had to have crossed your plate or at least crossed your mind to say, boy, should we just take this open source thing and build a wrapper around it? Or should we take this problem and go try and solve it with some core team? That had to be something that of you course. were considering. Of course. Especially in the context of you want to go run a company. Absolutely. And there are other companies with friends of mine who have left Facebook that have started those companies. And yeah. I'm, I'm actually still involved in those yeah, companies, okay. right? So I get that. I get to scratch that itch often. What has surprised you most about doing the CEO thing that's different than what you expected? I'll say that. Honestly. Yeah, I think everything's different, honestly. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that just from a pattern recognition, from the roles that I've had in the past, you sort of know what, for example, there's things from a recruiting and a leadership perspective and a coaching perspective that I just know and experienced what great is. Yeah. And we didn't always have that, say, when I was at Akamai or when I was at Facebook. Mm -hmm. It maybe took us two or three years to really find what the perfect model was. But when I got to Lacework, I didn't have to spend three years trying to totally. stumble my way through there. And I was like, this is going to yield the best output for us, whether mm -hmm. it be on hiring or developing leaders or whatever it is or execution frameworks, et cetera. So there's a lot of pattern recognition and things that, I think we all and I brought with me and could really reorient the business to just be able to adapt and move faster, right? Because you weren't stumbling your way and trying to figure out all this stuff from scratch again. So we didn't need to reinvent a lot of wheels. But I would say, I think it's still in that mode where you're constantly trying to just acclimate because in many ways, probably the biggest thing, and they say this is, you know, the CEO job is a lonely job. And I don't think that actually does I don't think that's fair because you have lots of people that will talk to you, right? Mm -hmm. You have customers, you have other executives, you have a board. Yeah, have... but don't you think people say that? Like, you can get any meeting you want. Right. You can talk to whoever you want, but you can't really be vulnerable about the challenges to all the people that want to talk to you. Meaning, I'll give you some examples of constituents that you could talk to that might be difficult to be vulnerable to. Your board. Yes, maybe you have an incredibly supportive board. We do. But, but, but. It's still hard to go to that person and give them their deepest and darkest challenges. Your employees, 
pretty hard to go to your employees, your leadership team. I'm sure you have a great leadership team. I yes. know some of them. They are amazing. They are. However, you're still the leader. Yes. And you can't go to them when you've had your worst day. I mean, you could, but it's difficult. Customers, same thing. You're not going to go tell them about the feature that's broken that you're obsessed about fixing right now that's yeah, killing you inside. Yeah. Maybe you could. But my point is, I think that's why they say it's lonely. Not because of the accessibility of the conversation for you. Most of the substance no, that's of what it. I Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean in that it it is hard to, depending on the situation, to find the right person or the right place to you need help processing these things. And it's not necessarily that you don't know what the right answer is. And many times it's just like how you get there and yeah. how hard it is and how to balance time, emotion, the word choice, et cetera. I think those are the hard part of the job. I would say the other thing too, for me is just, you know, really making sure I'm using my time effectively. Like I really want to balance. I want to spend as much time with customers and in product. Those two are really important to me. And then how do you make sure that you're still and invested in one of our big initiatives in addition to various things from a product and a go-to-market perspective is company building, right? And company building takes on a really new meaning now in 2023 than it did say in 2021, the fundamentals may be the same, but you're building a company in a very different time with very different macroeconomic impact, different emotions in your employees and in your investor base and in your partners and different trade-offs. So I think thinking through what that means from a company building perspective is also, again, if I go back to where I feel like I learned the most, maybe struggled the most, matured the most, increased my level of self-awareness as, as a leader... It was always in those moments, you know, early days of Akamai, dot-com boom, dot-com crash, all of the tough times there, the layoffs, Danny passing, all of these things, or the early days of of Facebook when, you know, you look at most things and you're like, I don't know how this worked today. And just this sheer force of will of wanting to keep going. Mm -hmm. On the company building commentary that you made, like uh, how it's different now than before, if aliens came to earth today and asked you, Jay, can you describe company building? How would you describe it? Do you have a distillation of what company building means to you? I think it's a fluid distillation and it is a bunch of critical elements and they, they all interconnect. So they have to connect because I think a lot of times folks think of these as separate things with separate different ownership and metrics. But to me, that's all, being a very hardcore systems thinker, these all are interconnected and being able to understand how they move and impact each other. So company building, it starts with the people that are coming in the door, right? So what are you doing in terms of finding the best people that you can that, one, bring obviously the competencies that you need, whether it be sales competency, whether it be product management competency, whether it be finance competency, and the list goes on, to character and really thinking through, does the character of this individual, will it add to the team or does it is it neutral to the team, right? So I want folks that are additive, perspective, character, competencies to the team. I think the other thing too is like when you're, there's a lot of detail in terms of how to do or that I have in terms of how to source, how to recruit, how to evaluate, how to close candidates. And there's a rigor to it. 
and there's always a reflection of how that is working, both quantitatively as well as qualitatively. So it's a very sophisticated system that is managed and inspected and run very, very rigorously. And I think there's discipline that has to be applied there that oftentimes people just assume or they delegate this, right? And I think that's a mistake. When I was at Facebook, the 11 years that I was there, I was in candidate review for the engineers and I wasn't there in the last year or two. I was there regularly, but there was a team of us that we all took turns and that was great. But we had that rigor always, right? We never lost it. We never just relaxed or we never delegated it to somebody else. I would say also when it comes to what you're looking for, I think a lot of times people will do interviews and there will be a, you know, hey, Jubin, let's talk through your resume. Tell me what you did. And you'll go through and you've memorized it. You tell me your story. And then I'm like, hey, I like Jubin. Let's give him a hire. I don't want the resume recital and a likability score. I want likability and a respect score, right? We should respect the person that we're going to work with that they're going to bring a perspective, they're going to push us, they're going to make us better, they're going to help us do great things, and we should like the person that we're going to work with too. But I think it's sometimes you miss the respect part of it in the interview process. I think there's another area around just onboarding. I take onboarding really, really seriously. One of the first things we did at Lacework when I got there was totally start over with whatever scrappy startup onboarding that we did. And we have a very, very sophisticated, very highly produced, every executive is in front of the employees, the new employees in the first two days, if not once, if maybe two times. And I do the kickoff. I do the welcome. I always do that in person with every new Lacework employee. And I think it's super important that we're there and it's not something that we delegate to other people. Now there's a wealth of amazing people who are talking to employees and new employees. So I think onboarding is really important. I think there's a playbook that I use for senior leader onboarding. And I have a go slow to go fast mantra about onboarding leaders there. I think there's a ton of things around just expectation setting, around feedback, around team building, teamwork, and just making sure you get to a level of precision and you're able to execute with a vengeance uh, you know, as a team. And I want that kind of focus for everybody. There's the quirks and the norms and the traditions that you build in a company, right? You can have this type of celebration or you can have this type of swag and those things, but those are not company building. Those sort of round it out and give it a little bit more color and emotion. But company building is these disciplines or this series of disciplines that you have around hiring people, developing growing, raising that collective level of self-awareness in an organization, and really unlocking and getting people to do the best work of their professional lives. Do you have a favorite question in interviews that you ask leaders? I have many. It depends on the role and depends on where I am in the interview process. But one of the questions I often ask is, give me two, three, four examples, or let's talk through two to three, maybe four examples of people that you as a leader developed. Let's start where they were and how you met them and what your initial engagement was as a manager supporting this individual. And tell me about what happened throughout the 
term that you work together. And what did you do? How did you help that person? How did they maybe help you? And I really want to understand what happens there in those coaching moments and those project moments and the successes and the failures and the XFN meetings or the reorgs, whatever might be happening. So that is a an interesting question for me because you really get to see how a leader thinks about people, the team themselves. When you're struggling to figure out what to do, who do you go to? And then maybe, I hate two-part questions, but indulge me. Are there any of the, like, what are the top things right now that you're going for? You know, like, what are the things that you're seeking advice on? I'm super curious. Absolutely. There's several people in the company that are great sounding boards for, mm. for me. Mm-hmm. And I think we just, I, it's nice to be able to work with several senior people. So you and go internal. I do, because I just honestly want people that, and I try to set up a dynamic Jubin where it's most of the time we're peers, right? And to me, that is the best in terms of unlocking us moving fast because they have context, they know me. Right. And I can go internal. They respect whatever the topic is. They can come to me as well. So that dynamic of, you know, 50% of the time we're peers, 25% of the time I work for you, 25% of the time you work for me type of thing, I just think is a much better version or just having that as your substrate of how you work with senior people, competent people, I think things, because we all need each other's help. And I go to different people for different perspective. And then I think the other thing is, you know, I write. And a lot of things that are maybe jumbled in my head, I need to have a pencil and a piece of paper and that tactile pencil feeling and paper, just writing for a half hour will really help me start to see patterns in what might be in my head. So a lot of times it's just sit down, pencil, paper, start this long scribble session. And it can be five minutes, it can be 20 minutes. I may have to come back to it, but usually that helps me clarify what I need to go seek out next. Either the answer or a decision will be emergent, or I'll come up with a framework for what we need to go explore next as a team. When do you get your best ideas? Brushing my teeth in the morning. Really? Yep. It's always been that way, it seems like. Always. It's not like working out or anything? Uh, I mean, it's all out throughout the day, but several things come to me while I'm brushing my teeth. Sometimes driving, I travel a bunch. Folks that I work with always hate when I'm on the road because I have lots of time to think and fire off lots of ideas to them and questions. What's the toughest feedback anyone's ever given you? Toughest feedback... I think there's been like where it hurt. It was so real. It hurt. Oh, I'll tell you an example. Recently, there was a decision or there was a change that I had to make recently. And I was moving fast through this change and told what I thought I covered the key people. And in my haste of moving fast and trying to get this done in a day or so, I missed a key person and somebody I've known for a really long time. And that person called me up, said, hey, you got five minutes? I said, sure. I called the person. They said, hey, you should have told me about this. And I said, absolutely. You're right. And 
that hurt. And I apologized. And then I told the person, I appreciate them. And they said they appreciate me. And we both kind of laughed a little bit. And then we said bye. And it hurt for, it's still actually, you know, it just happened recently. So Mm. it's one of those where, yeah, it hurt. I just didn't want to disappoint somebody who I have mad respects for. Yeah, totally. I appreciate sharing that. Do you feel like you need to prove anything to yourself? I continue to scratch my head of the logs that burn your fire. It feels like there's something still there that remains unproven in your mind. Do you disagree with that? Am I wrong? I'm not sure that framing is is correct, or I don't know that it's about proving something. I think through and through, I just really enjoy building. I enjoy creating as part of that, especially now. There's a lot of fixing, too. Like you're saying it's a love of the game. Like it's a true love of the game. It is. And there are days where obviously you're like, oh, this is really hard or Mm. why am I doing this? Or like, you know, maybe I should be I should be golfing or something today. But that's not who I am. I've tried those moments and that's just not who I am. I that idle more slower pace of life is not for me right now. And I think it is a love of the game. I would say what's really incredible for me is just being able to help people and be on this journey with a bunch of amazing people. Right. And I was texting with somebody that I've known for a really long time, worked very closely with that Facebook and amazing individual. And this just happened this morning, in fact, and this individual's leaving Facebook soon. And so we were just reflecting on some of the stuff that we had seen together, worked through together. And it was just fun kind of thinking through all the stuff that we did together and figured out and all the hard things that were thrown at us. And, you know, there was a moment in the conversation where I was talking about something and we had this moment where I reminded this individual that I wouldn't let them, they rejected our offer initially. <laughs> and I reminded them that I was like, remember you turned us down. You turned me down the first time and I didn't let go. And I went to their manager at the time and I was like, they're like, well, we have this other candidate. I was like, I don't want the other candidate. I want this person. But Jay, they declined the offer. I was like, for now. So let's all get together and brainstorm of how we can change that person's mind, this person. So we did, we worked hard and ultimately this person joined the What'd you do? company. Well, we did a number of things. There was a bunch of follow on conversations. This person needed a little bit more time to transition out of prior role. And we just had to work through those logistics yeah. and say we had flexibility and sure, you wanna show up here in three months instead of two weeks, totally fine right? Because this is the long game that I'm playing and that I want to play, but I just wanted this person on the team. And I just was relentless about getting this person on the team. And this person, we were just reminiscing on the things we did and just was like, Jay, this experience at Facebook changed my life. Super cool. Isn't it almost a curse when you know what great looks like and you're the overachiever that you are, that I feel like I am, that it's almost not an option to compromise on that standard and it can drive everybody around you absolutely crazy absolutely nuts because you start to seem like an unreasonable human but you can't help it 
because you just know what it should be. Absolutely. But I'm very good at making fun of myself around this too. (laughs) And I think those moments of levity and self-deprecation, I think, really help humanize somebody. And I think another thing that is just really important as a leader is, and I do a lot of, I think, reflection and adjusting of who I am and how I spend my time on continuing to make me come across to people as being approachable, right? And it's just something that's really important when you can be and have that human connection and you're like, hey, he's also just a normal person. And even though I may have this title or this role, then people, I think, will understand more of about what that means and what drives you. Mm. I don't know. I don't think of it as a curse or so, but it can be annoying at times where you know what that should look like. And to me, what is hard about it is not getting there fast enough. Like I'm not going to compromise. What is hard though, is knowing how people in organizations have a certain rate to digest change. They all do. And if you try to do something too fast, it doesn't work well. If you kind of just let it be, it's not going to ever get there. So you got to find the right way to keep that constant force, that constant pressure and still get there as fast as you possibly can without losing everybody. So to me, that's the frustrating part of this is just like, how do you get to great when you know it? How do you get there fast enough and not overshoot or undershoot? I hired someone on my team here. She's amazing. She's a operating partner on the marketing side to step into our portfolio companies and help them with everything on the marketing side. I ultimately interviewed probably 40, 45 people. For these types of roles, I do all my own interviewing. I do all the outbound, everything. I like to control the process full stack. She was the second interview that I did. And it almost spoiled everything else for me in some way because I saw right then and there, that is the bar. That is 100% the bar. And she said no in six different ways, in six different languages, and kept chipping away, kept chipping away because I just knew, I kept having other conversations, but in the back of my head, I knew this is it. And until I find someone that meets this bar, she is the candidate, you know? And then, you know, I find out timing is bad, did not matter at all. Couldn't have cared less because I knew that this is a decision for the long term and I just couldn't let it go. And everyone thought I was crazy. I just couldn't let it go. And there was temptation to lower the bar There's because you can right. start to tell yourself and others start to tell you. And there's organizational pressure to fill the role because you're doing some of the work. Other people are doing the work. You're measured on how quickly you can hire for that role. I'm so happy in hindsight now But I think in the moment, it's very difficult. At Facebook, I was recruiting an individual engineering manager. I was pursuing them for three years and I would not give up. Three years, Jubin. And the first time, really, really close, declined the offer. And then tried again. I think it was another decline. Timing just in life, other job offers, et cetera but I just wouldn't give up. And three years later, that person joined the company and that person is still at Facebook, thriving, doing amazing, has been promoted multiple times, incredible leader, but I just would not give up. Three years. And you left that position empty? We worked around it for a while. And then again, remember the company was growing crazy fast. So even though maybe that role exact role wasn't there. It didn't matter it to didn't you. Matter you were going to create a role for this position Absolutely. no matter what. Yeah. This person was talented in so many different ways. 
And when that person was ready, we we're going to make it all work. And that's what happened. You have a distinct reputation for being a very hard worker. I think you pride yourself in doing a lot of work. What's the balance like for you? Do you ever feel like, how old are your kids? 11 and 13. Do you ever feel regret? Does it weigh on you? Is there a guilt of almost like, because you love the game, you have many loves. You love your family. You love your work. Of course. And, And I think you're allowed to say this. Like You can get the same fulfillment from your work that you do from your family, just in different ways. How do you balance that? Do you feel, is that hard? I think it's hard for all of us. I think we just have a lot going on and we want to do well in lots of things. Mm. Family, work, friendships, all of these hobbies, et cetera. But I do try to, I'd say as I get older, I really think that it's important to work to simplify your life and to really make sure you don't overly get complex and try to get, I think, extended in lots of different ways. So there is this just like time management and work. There is this, okay, really making sure you just try to cut out the noise. What really matters this week or this day or whatnot, right? And there are days where I'm traveling, I'm gone to Europe for the full week, right? There's not a lot of time for family, for the kids, for friends. And then when you get back, you try to adjust. And again, I just look at my schedule and saying, okay, hey, the balance is a little out of whack. I need to change one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm also somebody who doesn't really, I don't generally live in the past. I learn from the past, but I kind of, I'm always looking forward and it's like, what do I need to tweak from something yesterday? But I don't fester or stay in the past. It's, it is what it is. I can't change it. I try to figure out what I need to course correct if I'm off and do the best that I can the next day, the next week. Yeah. And keep going. Iterate. Yeah. I think that's fair enough. Dude, I appreciate you doing this. Of course. I really do. I close all these things the same way. Are you hiring? Is Lacework hiring? Are there any key roles that you've been since you started seeking someone for? Yeah, anything you want to shout out? Absolutely. We're always looking for great, talented people who share this passion around how to solve these security problems for enterprises out there. So folks in engineering, in security, background research, go-to-market, always looking for a perspective of people who bring this domain expertise, but really this passion for doing something really impactful and important in the world and believe in our disruptive approach that we're building at Lacework. When you hear the word grit, what comes to mind? Just don't stop. Got to keep moving. And your path may not be a straight line. It may not be perfect. It may be full of zigs and zags. You may even have to back up and go a different direction. But for me, it's all about just not stopping. Keep moving. Jay, thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.